Hey, do you guys know Ken? Ken Lucas? Uh, Ken Lucas is uh, one of our pastors here at Crossroads. He's going to be, in the next year or so, uh, launching out of here to plant a church from Crossroads. And he's just become a dear friend and a colleague. And so would you just give it up for Ken Lucas? Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ken. And we'll thank you for that introduction. And more importantly, thank you for the unique way that you and the musicians really get our hearts ready for the good news of Jesus Christ. So, amen? Well, as we get started this morning, I would just like to extend a special shout out to all you parents out there. Yes, to all you parents. I'm a parent as well. And I know that there is this temptation as a parent of young children that you just want to stay home on Sunday morning because the work of getting kids ready to come and worship Jesus. But parents, you're here. You're here. And that's good news, so we can celebrate the good news of Jesus as a community. So parents, we are so glad that you're here. But also at the same time, parents, you are a great reminder for all of us. Yes, being a parent is one of the most intensive learning phases in life. I mean, you first learn that you know nothing, and then you have to learn a whole host of things about diapers and swaddles and tantrums and all this kind of crazy things. Uh, But you're a good reminder for all of us in this intensive learning phase, especially for those of us who are younger than you, Uh, high school students, college students. You're a good uh, reminder for those of us who are also parents and also folks who are a little bit older, maybe grandparents as well. And here's why. As a Christian community, it is critically important that we continue to learn. That we continue to learn how to be the community that Jesus Christ intends us to be right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We have to keep learning. As a group of Christians, there is never a moment in which we collectively sit down in a comfy chair put our feet up nice and high, and then binge watch Netflix shows until Jesus Christ returns. Oh, no, 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 no. We continue to learn. And so this morning, what we're going to do as we are working through a sermon series on the book of Revelation, a series of messages in which we have been encouraged, excited, and even challenged. Yet today, we're going to come face-to-face with a faithful Christian community in the book of Revelation. And our hope with the time that we have together is to accomplish just three things. Three very simple and clear things. First, we're going to do our best to learn from this faithful Christian community. And that is, how do we grow as a Christian community right here and right now? How do we grow? And then second, we're going to spend a good chunk of our time learning what does a faithful Christian community actually do? Little Jersey in me. And then lastly, we're going to spend our time uh, looking at what a faithful Christian community actually looks like with our eyes. What kind of identity do they have? So three things. How do they grow? What do they do? And then what do they look like? With that being said, I would like to invite you all to stand as you are able and listen as I read to you Revelation chapter 3, 
verses 7 through 13. That's Revelations 3, 7 to 13. Here we go. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Pause really quick. This is not Philadelphia, East Coast, America. Just FYI. Uh, Philadelphia church a long time ago in what is now modern day Turkey. So here we go again. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God never again. Will they leave it? I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, you may be seated. Before we look at or learn from this church community in Philly on how to grow as a faithful community, uh, let's just do a little bit of historical background to the city of Philadelphia. Uh, I don't want to try to reduplicate the great work that Rod and the other preachers in this series have already done to give us the historical backdrop to the book of Revelation. But instead, I just want to give you two things that stand behind this letter, these words that Jesus is speaking to this church in Philadelphia. Here they are. First, the city of Philadelphia was a religious melting pot. It was everything and everything. Everything and everything. It was diverse as can be. In fact, so much so that an author who wrote about the same time as the book of Revelation was written claimed that Philadelphia is a little Athens. Yes, not Athens, Georgia, but a mini-me of Athens, Greece, this famous city some of you are aware of that was the mecca of religious diversity. I mean, there are temples for every single religion under the sun in Athens. And in a similar way, the same is true in Philadelphia. And here's why. Geographically, they were uniquely situated so that Greek and Roman religions could easily stream into Philadelphia. And at the same time, on the east side, uh, religions from the ancient Near East can work their way into Philadelphia too. So it becomes this unique religious hodgepodge. And that's not all. 
apparently there's this really vibrant and strong and influential, we don't know the number of them, but strong and influential Jewish community in Philadelphia. Uh, We know this to be true because historically there are documents that say how these Jewish folks were able to contribute great amounts of wealth to building projects in Jerusalem that they were able to contribute money towards the Roman Empire, and on occasion, they were able to bend the ears of the Roman political leaders of their day. Religious melting pot. Number two, the city of Philadelphia knew affliction. This was a town that knew what suffering was like. Rod alluded to it last week when he talked about this earthquake in 17 AD. This is before the book of Revelation was written. So there's a good chance that pretty much everybody who was still around in Philadelphia was tremendously shaped by this natural disaster that, I guess, from this fellow named Pliny, an ancient writer says, that earthquake, that earthquake is the greatest in all of human history, because overnight, many people died and all the buildings crumbled. As we step into this question of how does a faithful Christian community actually grow, let's continue with this theme of affliction. Let's keep moving along with this idea of suffering. Here's why. The Philadelphia church, this faithful Christian community that we are going to do our best to learn from this very morning, this group of Christians knew affliction. In fact, in almost every way, they were shaped and formed out of suffering. Of course, we already know in one way, right, this general kind of affliction that comes from things like natural disasters, Uh, This natural disaster that probably many of the people in this Christian community lost grandparents, parents, maybe siblings, children, friends. Maybe they lost their home or their business in this earthquake. And then there were more tremors and earthquakes thereafter. So they, like everybody else, Christian and non-Christian, in this uh, diverse group of people, they knew suffering in this general way, but they also knew it very specifically. Let me tell you what I mean. Because this group of Christians was willing to boldly proclaim with their words and with their actions the good news that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, they were afflicted. Because of their willingness to tell other people that the good news of God's incredible love for the whole world can only be seen and tasted in Jesus Christ, they suffered. Because they were willing to tell the people in their neighborhoods that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God, they experienced deep pain. You're wondering, how do we know this to be true? Well, there are clues in our passage. Let me show them to you now. Uh, Right there in verse uh, 8, Jesus tells them, You have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is a great reference 
to probably how they were being afflicted by Roman political leaders. Back in them days, uh, the religious, or religious, the political leaders loved people to worship together, regardless if they're all about Zeus or Dionysus or whoever. They didn't care. As long as everybody lined up together and worshiped, that was good for the Roman Empire because it promoted peace and harmony. I mean, Religious conflict isn't something new, my friends. And the Romans used this diversity and togetherness to prevent fights. And then here are these Christians. We don't bow to anyone else but to Jesus. So affliction in this way would have looked like marginalization. So imagine with me for just a moment. You are a Christian in Philadelphia. You go to apply for a job with the government, and the government leader's like, you are so qualified. You had A++ all the way through college. You're a Christian? Ooh, so sorry. Or what if you own a small business, an entrepreneur like many of us who are here in Grand Rapids, and you do tile work, and you get invited to do a beautiful mosaic in this wealthy person's house. You show up, you bought all the product, you're ready to go, and the house owner's like, you're a Christian? Get out of here. That's a Philadelphia reference, just FYI. (laughs) Marginalization affliction. But that's not all. There's another clue in our text where there's this phrase, the synagogue of Satan. Most likely, this is a reference to the kind of persecution that these Christians would have experienced from this stronger, more influential Jewish population. Pause button. This is not an opportunity for me or any other Christian to suggest that Jewish people are our enemies. This is dealing with a very historical moment in church history. Sadly, we Christians have used passages like this to attack people like Jewish folks. So please, this is limited to a historical situation in Philadelphia almost 2,000 years ago. Okay, pause button stopped. This more influential Jewish group was persecuting the Christians because they were starting to realize, yeah, they like the Old Testament and all, but man, they're saying Yahweh is Jesus? Get out of here again. So they were sent out of the synagogue. They were being verbally persecuted, and maybe even this is the beginning of a physical persecution. Are you starting to see the affliction that these Christians experienced, a faithful group of brothers and sisters a long time ago? Can you see it with me? Here's the problem with affliction. It's like being parachuted into a pressure cooker. A pressure cooker that has all this external pressure that's just coming down on us from every single angle. It's hemming us in on all sides. It's the kind of pressure that produces blood pressure to increase sleeplessness, loneliness, depression, and worst of all, hopelessness. Would it be okay if I shared something with you now? Would it be all right if I shared with you the answer, the secret sauce of how a faithful Christian community grows? Here it is. A faithful Christian community listens to Jesus. Listens to Jesus' words. If you have a red-lettered Bible, you know this is true. 
the passage that we are working on this very day is in red ink. These are Jesus' words, which of course would have given hope to a hopeless group of Christians a long time ago. But we all know this to be true too, the importance of listening to the words of Jesus, do we not? Think about it. The words of Jesus has the ability to give us new life. Many of us were once lost and now we are found. The words of Jesus Christ has the ability to gather us into a Christian community. Look at this. I'm standing in the middle reading Jesus' words. We are being gathered by the very things that he's saying to us. That's not all. Jesus' words has the ability to teach us, to help us grow as his students, i.e. disciples, so that we can be sent on his mission to this broken world to make the good news of his words known to those who desperately need it. And more than all that, Jesus' words gives us hope. Jesus' words eradicate those darkest nights of the soul. Jesus' words remind us that who we are right now in the midst of suffering isn't who we're going to be in the future. Jesus' words is the very thing that helps a faithful Christian community grow. I say all this to you, and I'm sure that there are several of us here tonight, even myself, and you know affliction personally, maybe in this general way of a natural disaster, that took someone you loved, or maybe in this general way of these political or corporate power plays that we live in in this world, this world that's not the way it's supposed to be, where you might lose a job because you're five years away from retirement and they don't want to pay retirement, so they lose you right away. Maybe that's the source of your affliction. Or how about this? Maybe there are some of us here today who are afflicted because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe there are some of us here today who are being marginalized by our friends or our coworkers. They make fun of us. Oh, Christian, you can't be a part of our cool kids club. Or what about this? What about persecution? It still happens. Maybe it's more verbal right now, but maybe there's some of us here who are being persecuted because we actually believe that Jesus' words are true. And then there's another group of people here this morning, I'm sure of it, that you're doubting whether or not you can trust Jesus' words. Maybe you're not so sure about this whole Christianity thing, these words in the Bible. And maybe that's the case because you've had Christians abuse Jesus' words in your life for their own agendas. And they belittled you to no end where you want nothing to do with the words of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're more scientific rational, which I am clearly not. But maybe you are, and you just can't make sense of how does God become a man who dies on a tree and then rises again. This makes absolutely no sense. If that is you, I'm going to say this on behalf of the Crossroads Bible Church community. We are so glad that you are here. Now hear this, my friends. Jesus' words are reliable. It's right here in our text. Jesus gives these words that self-describe himself, these titles, right? I am the holy one, the true one. That word true could and should be retranslated as reliable. I am holy and reliable, faithful. What I say you can trust. That's what Jesus is. Here's why we can trust the words of Jesus as reliable. Jesus knew affliction. 
If you dare to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in this here book, you will quickly see that before the cross, he was afflicted nonstop. And then he was so afflicted, he became the afflicted one and was put on a cross where he died. And then this guy named Peter writes later, and he says, by his wounds, we have been healed. The good news is, Jesus' affliction saves us. Friends, Jesus is telling us, even if we are afflicted, that he's giving us hope, but that even our affliction can be used to help others see the good news of God's incredible love. Lastly, let me just say this one last thing, because it's so good in the book of Revelation. Jesus repeatedly says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. I am the one who is, was, and will be. Past, present, future. Jesus' words are reliable. Can I get an amen? Yes. And the good news is we're just getting started, y'all. We are just getting started. Um, Indeed, this is nice to know how a faithful church community does grow by listening to the words of Jesus. But now, like any good student or parent that's trying to learn how to be a parent, we need to roll up our sleeves and try to figure out what is Jesus saying that we should be doing? What task does he have for us as a Christian community? Well, the answer is embedded in our text in a very awkward and strange set of words. Uh, It's right there after that whole holy and true, or we are saying reliable, where Jesus says, he holds the key of David. Key of David. That's weird. So let's try to make sense of this. Uh, This is a reference from the Old Testament of the Bible. Specifically, there's a prophet named Isaiah in Isaiah 22 where he is describing someone from a long time ago that held the key of David. This guy's name was Shebna. Yes, Shebna. And Shebna is like secretary of state and a janitor at the same time. It sounds weird, I know, but let me develop this a little more. So here's Shebna. He's like the secretary of state for the king, the Israelite king in Jerusalem. And his job is to discern whether or not you should be able to talk to the king. He grants access to the king. Secretary of state, discern if you should talk to the king. Like a janitor, he has this metaphorical key to open the door to bring access to the king. So he could get you in to talk to the king. That's Shebna's job. Shebna was terrible at holding the key of David or access to the king. Instead of doing that, he spent most of his time uh, riding fast chariots with his friends, uh, building a big tomb uh, with his name on it so everyone would remember the name of Shebna, the great secretary of state slash janitor. I'm joking. It doesn't say that. But that's what he did with this role. And here Jesus is saying, I am the one who holds the key to David. I am the one who holds the key that accesses the king. For those of you who are Bible scholar nerds, you know that Jesus is describing this kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I am the one who opens 
the access to the kingdom of God, where God is reigning and ruling. I am the one who has the key to grant access to God's divine presence. How about this way? I am the one who has the ability to give you access to a relationship with God. Jesus has a history of opening doors. If you've read those books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see this for yourself. Here's an example of the kinds of people that Jesus opened the door for. Uh, There's these famous moments in the Bible where Jesus tells little children, come to me, come to me. Don't prohibit these kids not to come to me. And of course, this makes beautiful sermonettes to little children and shows us that Jesus loves children. Well, he made them, so yes, of course he loves them, but that's not why. Jesus is inviting or opening the door to these kids because they have no social or economic status in his time in history. Back in Jesus' day, if you are a wealthier person than me, I don't want to assume too much of you, but maybe you are, I don't know, but let's pretend for a moment, and you have more power than me, I will do nice things for you, like use my chariot to pick up your stuff from one house and move it to another house. Because I know that somewhere down the line, you are going to do something even better for me. It's called patronage. Jesus is saying, I am opening the door to the very people who have the least amount of social status and economic privilege in our society. Little children, come to me. I've opened the door. But that's not all. Here's another example. Uh, There's this lady who is drinking at a well at a very awkward time of the day, woman at the well. This woman has three strikes against her. Uh, First of all, she's a woman, and back in Jesus' day, as a woman, sometimes you were treated less than property. Strike number one. Strike number two, she's a Samaritan. Back in Jesus' day, if you're a Samaritan, eh, you're like second class. Because, yeah, you might believe in the Old Testament of the Bible and God and all that stuff, but you all work some other stuff in there in faith, so we don't trust you. You're like inferior to us. Strike number two. Strike number three is this lady's been married five times. Perhaps this isn't her fault. Quite possibly, she wasn't able to produce children, so every guy divorced her once they figured that out. Or maybe she just had bad luck. And every guy dies. We don't know the answer to this question. But at that very moment, she is living with her boyfriend. She's cohabitating. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says, I've opened the door for you. Come and drink life-giving water. That's not it. There's these folks called tax collectors, the most hated people in Jesus' day. Tax collectors were hated because they were like greedy little piglets. Oh, they'd like to get your gold coins for Caesar, but they always like to put a few extra in their own little pockets. So everyone despised them. Jesus meets this fellow named Zacchaeus. We don't know if he's short. Maybe he is. I don't know. But Zacchaeus is somebody that Jesus goes to his house, opens the door to God's reign, God's presence, to a relationship with God. And in response, Zacchaeus gives away half of everything he owns. He repays anyone that he fraudulently took money from four times over. Friends, are you starting to see a trend? The people that are most annoying, society's outcasts and losers, Jesus has a history of opening the door for them. 
But that's not all. Some of us recognize that we aren't those people. What about us? Good news. Jesus took the key, the cross where he died, and he took that key and he opened the door so that all of us who trust in him and repent and are willing to live our lives for him, we can step right through that door and be in God's presence. This is why we Christians sing about, talk about, and are so energetic about the cross. Because the cross is the place where Jesus exchanges our forgiveness sins and replaces that with forgiveness. The cross is the place where Jesus takes our anxieties, our fears, our anger, our frustrations. He takes those very things and replaces it and gives us a relationship with the one true living God. A faithful Christian community invites others to come in. Of course, this is good news for those Philadelphia Christians or even all of us who might be afflicted knowing that Roman leaders or this strong, influential group can never shut the door that Jesus has opened. But at the same time, our task, the very thing that we must always find a way to do is open the door, not try to close it because he's the one who can shut it, not us. Sadly, we Christians have a history of trying to close the door that Jesus has already opened. Uh, there's this great story that I found this week in preparation for our, our time together. And it's uh, an interview with a missionary in India, India with a guy that he met there. And apparently this guy has a really unique story. Uh, he was a lawyer by trade. And back in the day, he went to South Africa to learn his trade of being a lawyer and to work in civil rights and all that sort of thing. So this Indian guy is in South Africa learning to be a lawyer. And while he is there, uh, he just becomes enamored with Jesus' words. He is just like consumed, especially with the Sermon on the Mount. These words are powerful. This guy knows, even though he's Hindu, that Jesus is saying something incredibly wonderful. So this guy puts on his best suit and decides to go down to a local church in South Africa. He is Indian. He walks up the steps, and then the church that he's going to is Western European, people who look like me. You can see where this is already going. Leaders from the church are like, get out of here. You don't belong here. And I'm not going to repeat the words that they used, but they did all they can to try to shut the door metaphorically and literally, the very door that Jesus Christ himself has opened and no one can shut. Well, years had passed and this fellow was being interviewed by this missionary, as I've already alluded to, and this missionary is like, well, what did you get from that experience? How has that shaped you? What's your thoughts on Christians? The fellow says, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians, hear this, friends, if Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ, as found in the Bible, Jesus' very words, all of India would be Christian today. You're looking at me and you're wondering, who is this fellow? What's this guy's name? His name is Mahatma Gandhi. 
Perhaps you've heard of him. He is a fellow that helped create this incredible movement of nonviolent resistance that toppled the largest, at the time, empire, the British Empire. And then there's somebody in our American history that was tremendously influenced by Gandhi. That man's name is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who adopted a lot of the things that Gandhi did, said and did. And as much as we could talk more about that, I think here is clear that our task is to do all that we can to invite the world into the door that Jesus Christ himself has opened. That is what faithful Christian communities do. In the beginning of our time together, I did make a promise. I promise that there's an image embedded in this text that really captures what a faithful church community looks like. Uh, It's right there in verse 12. I'll read it to you now. Here it is. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Never again will they leave it. A faithful Christian community looks like pillars that Jesus himself makes. Think about that historically for just a moment. Philadelphia is a town, little Athens, with lots of temples. But in a different way, Philadelphia is also a town with earthquakes and tremors. So many of those temples in Minimi, Athens, have been knocked to the ground time and time again. That means the pillars that support the structure of these temples crumble and have to be rebuilt. Jesus says, I will make you into a pillar that will last for all eternity, not just right now, you can be in the presence of God, but my friends, a faithful Christian community is a pillar in God's holy temple. We are are rooted in God's eternal presence for all times ever. Jesus even stamps his own name on these pillars. Of course, this continues to give us hope, especially for those of us who feel afflicted, but this is good news. We are brought in through Jesus Christ. But that's not all. In our passage today, there is so much talk of enemies, right? These Roman political leaders, uh, this strong Jewish population, And Jesus makes this comment about how at some point they're going to fall down at their feet because of the love of God. Remember, Christians, no one falls at our feet. We're witnesses to the love of God. We aren't the love of God. People, our enemies, are going to come and fall down at the feet of Jesus Christ. Friends, our enemies are going to come and be made into pillars if they just know the good news that Jesus already opened the door, all we have to do is say, come inside, come and see Jesus. Be rooted alongside of us, not just right now, but for all eternity. A faithful Christian community looks like this. Rows and rows of pillars in God's eternal presence where we are standing alongside our enemies. If you don't believe me, listen to Jesus' very own words in that Sermon on the Mount. 
Love your enemies. Do good to them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Jesus Christ is passionate about people who don't like him very much. And he wants us to do all that we can to share the good news of what he did at the cross to open the door. Love it. Okay. To end our time together, I'd like to just share with you a story. I recognize that sharing this Gandhi story, there's a good chance that this could leave us with the wrong, uh, the wrong example of trying to close the door. So let's have a good example of a Christian community that did a good job of keeping the door open or at least inviting people in. Uh, here's an example, and it comes from my own experience. Uh, I am not a hero in this story. I was just an observer. I didn't know what was going on. It happened, but I was there. So here it is. I'm from New Jersey or came from New Jersey. I was a part of a church and lived on the Jersey Shore when Hurricane Sandy hit. Affliction is a deep part of my own personal experience. I've seen things that I just can't take out of my mind forever. But as a part of this Christian community on the Jersey Shore, uh, I had no power for 16 days. Uh, Most of my friends lost their homes. And then what we decided to do as a church was not do small groups or worship, but instead we met at our senior pastor's house each day, my mentor, and we would load up pickup trucks with chainsaws, uh, generators, gardening tools, plumbing, anything we get our hands on. And then we would drive together into neighborhoods that were even worse off than ours. And, well, people found out what we were doing, so they started to stream in and join us as we would go out during the daylight hours. Well, one day there was a fellow uh, from the neighborhood, uh, a disheveled looking man who looked very bitter and angry, not shocking for New Jersey, by the way. (laughs) And he comes in, if you're from Jersey, you know I love you. (laughs) That's how I just proved it. Yeah. What exit? (laughs) I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer. (laughs) We'll get some coffee later. Anyways. This fellow comes up to us, and he's just angry. Can I help you guys? Can I go with you? We're like, yeah, we're trying to do nice things. Sure, come on. So he comes with us. He's got soft hands. Doesn't look like he worked a whole lot. But he just looks like an angry person. So he comes along with us. And that particular day, we went to this house where a family lost everything. And this is one of the poorer areas of the Jersey Shore. And so that I got to be careful because there's some personal things that could come out. But we went to this house where this family lost everything. And I was throwing away pictures of their grown children because they were ruined forever. I mean, we're, we're just like weeping while we work. It's such a powerful experience. We're pulling a tree out of the top of this house. And uh, this guy was there and he helped us that day. And then lunchtime came around. The lady that owned the house Uh, is Latino, and she just decided, you know, I'm going to make everything I got in my fridge for you all. So she got everything that was still good and made us food. And we ate this food crying. But my mentor told me later that this fellow that seemed really edgy and difficult uh, told him that that was the day he was going to kill himself. You see, before Hurricane Sandy had hit, uh, he lost his business. His wife left him. Uh, He was about to lose his home, and he had no hope. He had no hope because he didn't think that there was such a thing as a God who loves. He thought Christians were fools. And yet it was in this very moment 
that he realized that not just Christians are fools, but he realized that this is what he's made for. That God designed him as he's designed all of us to be, to benefit others, to serve others. We're not saved for our own saveness, friends, but we were made to serve others as a way of pointing them to the open door that Jesus Christ has already opened. And it was on that very day, this disheveled looking man who was bitter and angry decided to become a pillar in God's holy temple. And that is an awesome thing to see. A former enemy now standing alongside us in the presence of the one true living God. Friends, this is what faithful communities do. Crossroads, thank you so much for being a great example of this time and time again in my very little time being here. But we still have more work to do to continue to learn to be the community that Jesus himself intends us to be. Would you please pray with me? Dear Jesus, we thank you first and foremost for the good news that you hold the key that you have opened the door wide open for all of us to come inside. And that, Lord, uh, we can come inside and experience the goodness of your love in your presence. And, Lord, we recognize as a Christian community that the best thing we can do is read your words, live them out, and then invite others to come and see. We pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is a very special time in our worship service where we get to take communion. And the best way that I think we can do this is to simply just listen to Jesus' words. So please listen as I read to you the very thing that Jesus is saying to all of us right here, right now. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Here's the good news, friends. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Logistically, we're going to have some folks serving communion up here, so by all means, start to stream in and take it yourselves. Um, but as the servers are coming up, please just let me pray. Dear Jesus, uh, we thank you for the good news that even though we might be afflicted in all sorts of ways, we hear you saying to all of us, come. And we pray together that as we come to this table, to be reminded of the good news that you have opened this door. And the door is always open. 
We pray, Lord, that there might be some of us here tonight, today, who are seeking to know you. And this might be the moment where they want to come forward, not just to take these elements, but to proclaim that they believe in you, that they trust in you. And they're going to live for you until you return. We pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every single name. Amen. Come and eat, folks. All right, as we leave, here's a good word from a fellow named Paul who wrote a, church, read a, read a, wrote a letter to a group of Christians in Thessalonica. Here's what Paul says. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, amen. <laughs>